Hello there and welcome to the latest edition of Podcast 1201. You are fortunate enough to be joined by your host, uh, me, Bradley Alsop, uh, tonight, uh, recording from a uh, rainy and damp Lincoln. Uh, and we're joined as well by Ollie. Hello, everyone. And we're also joined by Callum Watt, uh, who is currently voyaging in Derbyshire, I believe. Voyaging in Derbyshire. Well, I'm in a in a cottage in a slightly overcast valley, um, but it's lovely. It's been a, it's been a lovely week, and I'm quite happy to be here again, uh, speaking to you, Bradley. Yes, uh, Mr. Watt is so dedicated, even on his holiday, he tunes in to our podcasts to give us his thoughts. So thank you for joining us today, Callum. We've got two stories we're going to discuss tonight. Um, the first of which, to no one's surprise, will be the uh, plans for social care uh, announced by Boris Johnson this week, um, primarily involving uh, a hike in national insurance. Um, and the, the debates around that and wh- whether it's fair to call it a progressive move or not, there's been considerable debate in the media around that, um, and also Labour's alternatives or lack thereof. Um, and our second discussion uh, will be around the latest updates around COVID-19, including the government's winter plans um, for handling the pandemic and the decision to extend vaccines um, to 12 to 15 year olds as well. So we'll start with the national insurance hike, um, which has filled much of our news feeds this week. Uh, Primarily what the government is proposing is a hike in national insurance, uh, raising the rate at which is paid by 1.25% to plug some of the gap in funding for social care. I think the first thing it's important to note is that uh, by by any sort of uh, expert estimates of what's needed to plug the gap of social care, uh, this doesn't come close enough, the, the funds that, that um, Boris Johnson um, is hoping to raise with this. I'll check those figures in a minute, exactly what he's hoping to raise. I think a good chunk of it's going to go on, on NHS spending and then uh, some some bits left over will go towards social care, but it's certainly not going to fill the gap of social care, let alone address some of the issues that are um, systemic across the sector itself. Um, there's no real discussion in the plans at the moment about uh, reform to social care or, or, or changes to the structures and, and how social care works. It's primarily been a discussion around funding at the moment. Um, but we'll come on to that in a moment. The first thing to note is uh, it, it, the, what, what people are paying um, in national insurance isn't rising by 1.25%. Um, the, the rate at which they pay is raising by 1.25%. So before we, we came on air, um, the example I gave um, was that if you earn £100 uh, and you paid an extra uh, 1.25%, let's say you pay 10%, which is the current rate, um, you, you paid £10, so what was your national insurance? If, that's, um, if the amount you pay rises by 1.25%, for someone paying £10, that would work out at about an extra 12 and a half pence. Uh, if you change the rate that you pay by 1.25%, i.e. add that to 10%, you are now paying a rate of 11.25%, which if you pay £100, uh, if you earn £100, would work out at about £11.25. pence. So the difference is there is between a, a 12.5p uh, rise and a £1.25 rise so multiply that by the average earnings in the country and you can see how there's quite a what is a subtle difference in language is quite an important difference in income um so what seems like quite a small amount oh they're raising the rate by 1.25 percent is actually quite a large um 
you know, considerable sum of income. So, um, Callum, there's been some debate in the media this week about whether this is a progressive move by Boris Johnson and I suppose as well, is is this a sustainable way and is it is it going to, to give social care the funds that it needs? What do you think? Well, hardly. Uh, you know, we're a country of uh, many, many billionaires. They have gotten much richer over the last uh, two years. Uh, in part because of, of the pandemic, especially those who have invested in uh, property, in, especially in uh, those who are involved in deliveries for Amazon, for instance. Um, there's so much money swirling around in our economy, and the which could be used for the purposes of recovery. And yet the government has chosen to use one of the most regressive taxes at, at their disposal. Which is to say, national insurance uh, to uh, not even adequately uh, fund social care. Um, it's for, falls far short of the amount that is needed, um, and it just seems to be to me to be um, almost uh, not a, a new poll tax because people don't pay exactly the same. Um, but as you uh, pointed out before, because the percentage rise is exactly the same for those on all incomes. Disproportionately, those who are at the lower end of the income spectrum, shall we say, are going to be making a disproportionately higher contribution, which just seems absurd when these are also the people who have suffered the most during the pandemic. Um, so, and, and the government knows this, that it's, um, they are ultimately the class uh, the the uh, the party of the wealthy classes and they know exactly what they're doing this is um, for this is there's no better word for it really than than class war fair from the uh, from, from the government um, and you know it should be called out as such Great, thanks, Carl. Um, uh, Ollie, what, what do you uh, what do you make of the national insurance hike? Um, are you, do you do you think this is uh, the the best proposal the government could have put forward to to try and plug the gap in social care funding? It's it's the best proposal for for Tories, isn't it? Um, and it, you're exactly right, Callum, in calling it class warfare. Um, there are just you know I'm I'm not an economist and I don't know um, the intricacies about UK tax, but I think anyone will tell you that there are just so many alternatives. And if you, if you really speak to someone who knows what they're talking about, um, there are just so many alternatives, as you say, that we can we can be like using and utilizing um, to to make sure that those with the broadest shoulders, uh, you know, pay the most. Which is a term which is thrown around a lot, but not a lot is actually done about that. Um, and I think it's yeah, it's completely legit to uh, to talk about the billionaires that have who've absolutely raked it in um in in the pandemic and over the past few years but also before that um so yeah it's just it's kind of astonishing and it's quite abhorrent that they they think they can get away with this um you know this will be the the highest tax um in in peacetime britain which really kind of puts into context uh what this plan is in the grand scheme of things um you know if you think about Every prime minister since 
since Churchill, basically, and you think about how they were funding, uh, you know, their governments and and various projects. But this will just be a, a tiny amount in the necessary um, pool which is needed because there is absolutely um, going to be a, a social care crisis if there's not one already. Over the past, over the next, you know, few decades, we're going to really see the the cracks, um, the, the cracks forming uh, and really tearing holes in the UK economy. And I think we're really going to, you know, this this will barely paper over those cracks, really, in the grand scheme of things. And I, I think it's just, it's not going to be um, sufficient whatsoever. Yeah, I, I found the figures. So um, the, the estimate is that the rise will um, raise around about 12 billion, uh, reading this from an article on Sky News. Um, and of course, a, a good chunk of that in the early years is going to be used um, to deal with um, various issues in the NHS. Um, so, so twelve billion staff with um, when social care is pegged to need much more than that. Um, but it's not even you know all of that twelve billion is going to go on social care. So, a good chunk of it is going to go towards the NHS, which itself obviously um, need, needs additional funding as well. Uh, so, we're we all seem pretty agreed that uh, this is a, a pretty awful move by conservatives and. and you know, Boris is is not correct when he refers to it as a as a, a progressive move in any stretch. But what might some of the alternatives be, Callum? Any other basic progressive form of taxation? Um, we don't have uh, a wealth tax. Um, the uh, argument for that is growing stronger and stronger by the day. Um, I mentioned Amazon before. Um, the the, uh, the the head of Amazon, Jeff Bezos, is now talking about. He's as we mentioned in previous episodes, is uh, is going to space and is talking about making himself immortal, um, uh, while at the same time uh, killing uh, his uh, his staff members uh, around the world with uh, with poor conditions, including in this country. So we need that sort of uh, tax. Um, we have uh, people who are uh, hoarding. Uh, land uh, in order to increase its value and not building uh, building houses on it. Um, and there are also many landlords who do own property uh, who are not paying sufficient tax on, on their earnings while uh, exploiting and uh, providing inadequate services for uh, their tenants who are being evicted um, again because many of them are losing their jobs. Why aren't we taxing people like that? Um, you know there are so many other sources of wealth that could be extracted. You know even you know even income tax, which isn't the most progressive of taxes, uh, would still be uh, an increase on the on the highest earners. Would still be fairer than what is being introduced here. As I suggested earlier, this uh, increase in national insurance and the idea of national insurance. Is a very simple one. A lot of people think that it's the way that the NHS is funded uh, because it's called national insurance and it sounds similar to uh, the concept of health insurance, which is something that wealthy people have and people in other countries have um, sometimes uh, mandatorily. Um, But actually, uh, the NHS isn't funded primarily through national insurance it's funded through uh, taxes on other sources of wealth um, and 
it's those sorts of areas, the people and organisations that have done well out of the pandemic, uh, who need to pay their fair share. Um, and that objectively is what should be happening. Uh, and it isn't. The government's made a very deliberate choice to tax uh, the poorest in order to pay for, uh, in order to, uh, to, as I say, inadequately cover the cost of social care in the wake of this pandemic. And I have to say, I mean, I, you know, I, I had a meeting with uh, some officers, uh, again, in my capacity as a councillor, talking about uh, the uh, social care needs of, of some of our citizens in the coming months to years uh, in the wake of the pandemic. Um, and at this stage, we still don't really know what the full impact of, of COVID is going to be in the long run uh, on, on social care. Um, you know, we haven't even finished you know, catching up or, on the immediate impacts on it. So, uh, you know, if anything, we should be uh, overreaching to try and invest in social care, again, by asking those who have benefited the most uh, uh, from the pandemic uh, to pay for it. Uh, but the Conservative government is making a very deliberate choice not to do that. Um, and it is a, a, an absolute travesty. Um, and people need to uh, understand that. Uh, remember that when they go to the polls and when they talk about uh, Boris Johnson as the apparent saviour of the nation, as the uh, mainstream media like to portray it that. Yeah, and the, the the thing that struck me with this debate this week is that there's, you know, we're in some ways, you know, I think that's overstated. I think, you know, austerity and, and decimation of local council budgets and, and public services is still very much a very real, you know, factor in, in the lives of many people in, in 2021 Britain. But, you know, I think in terms of the political rhetoric around austerity, there, there's clearly been a shift, um, you know, particularly in, in Boris. Um, but that you know that said, we are going to continue to see um, spiraling costs for the NHS, for social care, for climate change. You know, we're increasingly going to have to adapt system, emergency service systems for defences. You know, all, all sorts of things are going to be massively impacted by climate change over the coming decades. Yeah, you know, and the bills for that are going to continue to spiral. Um, and it, you know, you, you've got a Conservative Party in government that is essentially ideologically opposed to the idea of raising taxes on people, uh, but absolutely raising taxes on rich people. You know, their, their political survival to some degree depends on keeping the, you know, keep, keeping rich people rich. So they, they very much have a very vested interest and an ideological interest in, in not raising taxes on, on rich people. So that, you know, that means they have two options, really, if you, if you set aside you know, positive monetary theory for a second. Um, you know, you, you, as a Tory, then you have two options. You either cut services, which I think we've reached the limit of what most people are going to politically put up with at this point af after the 2010s, um, or you do what's just been done this week and you, you bring in regressive tax reforms such as hikes in national insurance. But surely that will have a political limit as well, as well at some point. You know, the, the, Boris has probably got away with this one. Um, but you could see how if this was a continuing theme over the next several years, um, e even, you know, lucky Teflon uh, Boris Johnson 
would reach a limit of his political capital to force that sort of thing through. Um, so I, I think you know the, these things are really going to come to a head at some point. You know, we're, we're going to have to start being sensible about governmental expenditure in the face of climate change, NHS, social care issues. Um, and there's only so much more we can put on the backs of working people that they're going to politically accept. And that actually is just actually viable at all in, in, in an economy. Um, so at some point, we're going to have to start taxing the rich you know, and taking money and resources from the very wealthy. Um, but my question is, you know, what, what does a conservative government do about that? You, you just can't really fathom it under someone like Boris Johnson doing anything like the, you know, maybe a small rise in income tax for higher bands, but, you know, not on the scale that's going to be needed. Um, so what, 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 do, what do Boris and co do at that point? Ollie, you, you can feel free to respond to that or, 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 or whatever else your thoughts are on this issue. Yeah, it's really, it's really interesting. And it's something I've been thinking a lot about this week. Um, I don't want to. I don't want to start giving um, the Tory party and uh, the Conservatives and, and Boris Johnson ideas to to how to deal with this dilemma that they're going to face. As you say, it's inevitable. Um, and as you say, like working class people have just dealt with so much shit. Like if you're a, a millennial and you're a young person, um, and any generation since that, you've been growing up in an absolute um, sea of of uh, economic crises and. And housing crises and and just so much bad stuff. Like there's very little governments do for you if you if you looked at um, you know the developed world, I guess, and if you looked at um, places which have been, I guess, suf- suffering from from this neoliberal neoliberal ideology for the past forty or fifty years. Um, yeah, what do you do about that? If you the Tory party, I mean, I, I hope that they're, they're, they're scared really. I hope that um, they're really wondering, like, what the hell is gonna gonna happen because they they just um, they can't stay in power through that. Like, what they're doing and what they have done over the past few decades is is radicalized um, generations of people against them, young people, um, and they they just I don't see how that's politically viable. Uh, past I don't know what it'll be, maybe maybe 2030 or maybe a bit a bit later in the future but at some point there's just got to be some kind of change and it, it has to be I, I don't know I don't want to say a revolution necessarily um, but there has to be some kind of reform um, and they can't keep going on like this um, I think what it will be what it will look like um, is them trying to appease all the people that they've ideologically opposed for the past um, you know 100 years um, and make really small concessions um, and and seemingly offer them, you know, a massive amount um, after they've been, you know, completely trodden down by the state. Um, But whether that will be sufficient in the, in the eyes of, um, I guess, the working class people in the eyes of young people, I guess that remains to be seen. So given all of these uh, alternatives that we've discussed and, and given the, the looming uh, head-on collision between between these issues and, and the, the reluctance to, to tax the wealthy, um, you, you would imagine perhaps that the Labour Party uh, might be offering some, some bold alternatives to, to this national insurance hike. Has that been the case this week, Callum? I haven't seen anything. And, uh, you know, I would. It's, 
the remarkable silence of of Keir Starmer on this issue is is grotesque, and it just it's just such a wide open goal. Why wouldn't you attack it as a, as as a sort of latter day poll tax? Okay, it's it's not um it's not an exact comparison, but it's a fairly good comparison. It's an example of a tax which, as I mentioned earlier, is disproportionately poor, uh, falling uh, on the poorest, on the vast majority of people, actually. So why not shout from the rooftops? Uh, it's deeply perplexing um, and uh, sort of depressing to watch it. I mean, the, the only thing that kind of gives me some heart, as I say, as we uh, mentioned on the previous podcast, is that at least we can see in people like Sharon Graham, for instance, the recognition that we don't have to wait for Keir Starmer personally to do something in order to in order to oppose the government uh, when it comes to uh, really sort of almost medieval uh, taxation regimes. Um, we can organise ourselves and we will be seeing uh, more protests uh, about this. And I think in her case, she'll be organising more um, resistance from workers directly uh, to it as well. Um, that's the sort of thing that needs to happen. Uh, my suspicion, just building on what uh, Ollie was saying before, is that this is how um, resistance to the government's increasing neoliberal authoritarianism uh, will manifest itself it will it will manifest itself uh, by people organizing themselves more uh, increasingly in the workplace as we've mentioned before trade unionism uh, is increasing um, and it will manifest itself more in protests and direct action because there's no other way there's no other real alternative um, the people who are suffering the most covid because of the government's policies through its uh, new tax regime um, are, are um, the poorest, which increasingly extends critically, I would say, to uh, the lower middle classes, which are a, a class that you definitely don't want to uh, piss off. They are usually the people who lead revolutions, as, as Ollie puts it, whether that's an electoral revolution or... or uh, uh, one with more violent consequences, because let's not beat around the bush. Obviously, this is not an outcome that we want, but violence is eventually something that will start to happen uh, when you have misrule. Um, we've even seen in the last week the government uh, starting to attack the attack pensioners, yet again threatening to remove David Cameron's triple lock on the pensions. Now, that's not just going to affect existing pensioners, is it? It's going to affect people who are going to retire, well, people who are going to retire full stop, i.e. all of us, but most immediately, people who are going to retire in the next 5, 10, 15 years and so, or so on, i.e. people who vote, people who do have some economic influence, people who will be willing to uh, stand up uh, and or, or who are already used to mobilising themselves or have done in the past. Um, so, you know, you've got all of these conditions which are uh, really ripe for taking advantage of. 
Um, and these people will mobilize themselves regardless of what Keir Starmer and the people around him will do. I think it's just the question of him uh, catching up. And, and I've said before, um, conference is a, a, a conference will be a, a huge opportunity for him to do that uh, and, and for his uh, coterie uh, to, uh, to do that, to start taking advantage of those socioeconomic conditions that will drive change uh, and if he wants to be part of that then this is his opportunity um, but if not we are just going to get on with it ourselves um, and that will be the, the march of history we either succeed or, or, or we don't um, but that is the stark choice which which lies uh, before him uh, and his rather diminished band of followers at the moment. Well, the gauntlet is well and truly down now for conference then, isn't it? <laughs> um, I mean, I, I think you're right. I think, you know, I've seen a couple of clips of, of Starmer or, or someone on his front bench over the last um, over the last week or so. And it, more than anything else, it's actually just sort of embarrassing and, and you know, sort of cringeworthy to, to, yeah, there'll be a start where they'll quite well, you know, they'll, they'll quite expertly and, and quite, Articulately, you know, dismantle the, the, the conservative position, and you know, wow, this, this is going well. Carry on, um, and then the inevitable question comes: of okay, so what would you do differently from you know from the reporter? Um, and and it just crumbles. You know, there's this sort of vague talk of, oh, you know, it'll be in the manifesto. You, you you can't run a political party like that. I think one of the criticisms I think that holds some weight of of the 2019 election campaign is that there were a number of policies that were announced by by, by Corbyn and and the team that that there hadn't been enough groundwork to, to establish the, the argument for the, for those policies. I think you know lots of commentators raised that as a, as an issue post 20, the 2019 election. You know you, you've got to with big bold promises you've got to spend a bit of time you know laying the groundwork amongst the electorate and, and having those debates and having those arguments and, and swaying the public on them um but before an election uh, you know you can't just announce all of them in the middle of the election and, and and expect to to for people to be fully convinced about those ideas or or i suppose even if they do like the sound of them you know there was a sense of we've announced loads of things all of a sudden you know uh, is it practical to be able to do all of them can we afford all of them so i think that that's probably one of the the criticisms of the 2019 election obvious things like brexit aside that that probably had you know has has some merit and it, bizarrely, given that Starmer and, and a lot of his supporters talk about the electability and, and, and you know, sensible politics and all that sort of stuff, they seem to be actually falling for that mistake now. You know, if if the constant refrain is that oh, it'll all be in our manifesto, then you know what we'll end up with is a manifesto that that we have had no groundwork laid to convince people of these policies and these ideas, no time to spend convincing people. Uh, around our approach to government at all and we're, and we're going to have another manifesto that's sort of a bit out of the blue even for activists and um, that we're suddenly going to have to try and convince lots of people of um, with, with very little time in, in a short campaign um so that 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 to me i think is is one of the the, the disheartening aspects so, yeah also I, I don't necessarily think there'll be lots of fantastic ideas that it coming in in a manifesto by Osama. you know that that's the line you know it'll be in the manifesto but I strongly suspect if what we've seen so far from Sarah is anything to judge, we're not exactly going to have a bold and radical manifesto that, that answers a lot of the questions we've been left with. Um, and I think ultimately it just comes down to Sarah and those around him don't necessarily really have um, that much of an idea of what they want to do and, and how they want to change Britain, really. Um, which, you know, 
how how can people vote for us and how can we convince people to vote for us if, if that's the case of our leadership? You, your your take on it, though, Callum, was much more perhaps um, hopeful than what I've just said. So, so maybe maybe we should have gone the other way around and ended on a high. Uh, your idea of, you know, well, we can get on with it anyway and, and as activists and trade unionists and the rest of it, we, we don't have to wait for the, for the Labour Party leadership. We can get on with things as it is. I think it's a very healthy well, way let, to let, the current state. Let, let, let's hope that... Uh, this Let's be optimistic and, and hope that... Uh, you know, conferences that is the beginning of that step. Perhaps, perhaps they've just been waiting, waiting for the for the opportune moment. Um, I'm not naive enough to think that that is likely, but I think that you know the labour movement in general is quite forgiving. Um, any improvement at this stage uh, would, I think, be welcomed. Um, and uh, you know, it, it, the the most likely chance of an extra, if we're talking about the pure politics of it. It's most likely that the next general election be will be in 2023. So there is still time to, as we've been saying, um, apparently ad nauseum um, for for the last year uh, to, to to turn things around. Um, this is the first conference as well, so so maybe maybe this is where this is where it starts. Um, there will be more progressive policy on on the table, of course. Um, Lincoln uh, CLP has submitted its own uh, motion on the Green New Deal, for instance, um, which also affects the economy. Um, and there will be many other CLPs that have, uh, and unions, I suspect, that have submitted similar motions. Um, it's just a question of the party adopting them. So we'll see what happens. And we'll talk about that in more detail when the agenda is published, hopefully next week. Yes, yes. Uh, hopefully for our next podcast on Sunday, uh, we, we will go into details, all the things to, to look for um, at Labour Party conference. We're going to move on to our, our second story of the week, um, which is a update on COVID. So over the past couple of days, the government has announced um, its new winter plan for handling the pandemic as, as the nights draw in. Um, and we finally seem to be heading out of the summer months. Um, and they've also announced that they are offering, um, although it's not mandatory, they are offering um, vaccinations to 12 to 15 year olds um, in the UK. Um, th- there was some advice um, from, from the vaccine advisory group um, that, that they, they did not recommend um, that the vaccine go to 12 to 15 year olds. Although they, they had a bit in their report around um you know, they, they thought that there, there were a number of other factors to consider in terms of whether overall there was a benefit to the public in doing it that, that their remit didn't cover um, and that they recommended the government look at those additional areas and, and the government now has decided that they they are going to ex- um, offer the vaccine to 12 to 15-year-olds. Ollie, do you want to take us through some of these uh, announcements around COVID um, over the last couple of days? Yeah, sure. As you say, there's the the 12 to 15 year olds, uh, which will affect 3 million children um, of those ages, and that will be available from next week, apparently. Um, There is deliberation about what the winter plan uh, will be um, as the the flu rates, the coronavirus, sorry, the coronavirus rates will be, um, you know, probably going to rise over the, the winter months as we saw last year as well. Hopefully they're, they're not as bad as uh, what we had last year. Uh, which was effectively um, major disruption to what we, we usually do over the festive months, I guess. Um, but some they haven't uh, excluded um, the idea that uh, mandatory masks could return. 
um, and other um, kind of tactics such as um, um, sorry, uh, social distancing and and uh, home working and stuff like that. Uh, it all could still be in the pipeline, but obviously they don't want to have to do that. Um, it just if if their their main priority is is trying not to uh, overwhelm the NHS, which is uh, what they've said throughout the pandemic, I guess. Um, my my questions would be around this. Um, you know, we're still suffering from I think it's around thirty thousand cases a day. There's still uh, on average, the rolling de- seven-day average was 141 deaths a day, which is nothing to be, um, well, it, it is essentially been normalized, but I, I think it's really um, not not great, I guess. Um, and it just raises the questions, if, if masks can be made mandatory again, and if, um, you know, more stringent social distancing can be can be made if people more people can work to the office as we've seen a lot of people return to the office over the past few weeks and a lot of deliberation uh, between employers and employees around that why can't that still be going on um, why can't it be normalized that um, you know we still have these restrictions and we do it for the people that are still dying and still suffering from uh, severe cases of COVID-19 and that's I don't know I it's been it's been on my mind a lot, um, but I get the reason why we can't just lock down a country um, in impermanently. It just it's the easy things like wearing a mask, which might mitigate some of these um, these worst things that that gets me um, and it gets me down. But that's what's been going on with COVID, I guess. Um, and you know, there's still a lot to see. We don't know what's going to happen over the the winter months, but they're already uh, hopefully being more prepared for it than what we had last year, which was a bit of a shitstorm, actually. And they, they've they ruled out for now, at least, um, COVID passports, haven't they? They're not, not bringing those in yet. No, vaccination right. passports, sorry. Yeah, vaccination passports, but they're still uh, advising nightclubs and other uh, places to prep in case that does happen. And what's your take? I've seen some arguments for and against on the left. For, for vaccine passports what what's your what's your take on vaccine passports do you think they're a good idea um i i generally think they're a bad idea because i think they will really uh impact a lot of people and add kind of an extra layer of bureaucracy for for those who uh can't get identification and, and stuff like that and it's i think it generally isn't very uh productive and uh, it, you know We've seen a lot in this pandemic about restricting people's freedoms, um, and that's something I'm conscious about. Um, However, legitimately, that argument's been thrown around. Um, But in in general, I'm I'm against them, uh, I'd say, for the wider population. I still don't think we should be flying around to different countries, though. (laughs) But that's just me. Uh, Callum, uh, what what do you think? Do you think the the government's got it about right um, in terms of what it's preparing for the winter? Um, or, or should we be doing more now or, or, or looking at doing more in the coming months? Well, once again, we're in a position where we have to say, well, we just have to wait and see, don't we? Um, I mean, I suppose the slightly alarming thing is I did see, I didn't realise this, but I saw um, a chart yesterday which suggested that uh, the number of cases per day is, is as high um, as it has been during the second wave, which was obviously the more deadly wave of the disease, obviously 
with the vaccine rollouts, far, far, far fewer people are dying as a consequence, um, which suggests to me that the, the, the government now um, are, are sort of initiating a, a little more safely their original idea, which was to allow it to uh, allow, allow the disease to run through the population um, uninhibited. Um, with, with fewer deaths, which seems uh, amazingly cynical. Um, I mean, the only place where the only places I tend to wear a mask now um, is when I happen to be going into shops or into enclosed spaces. Um, you know, most of the time, and most of the time, you're seeing a gradual decline in people wearing them in those circumstances. Now, uh, people don't really. Uh, social distance like they were doing um, up to a few months ago. Um, so uh, the other thing, of course, to remember, of course, is once again, it, we're in the summertime as well. So obviously, you know, diseases um, uh, is uh, less transmissible uh, in, in, in warmer weather um, so, or, or less deadly. I should say. So I think it's notable that they haven't repealed or proposed to repeal the coronavirus legislation from last year. They're not retracting. I think the only law that they're proposing to retract is uh, the one about shutting schools. And obviously, as we know, they've always been quite reluctant to close schools anyway. Um, so I don't. I think that's that's an indication that the government still thinks that uh, there is a possibility we will have to lock down again uh, as the cold weather sets in and the virus becomes more deadly, more transmissible and so on. You know, as people spend more time indoors um, and, and, the, and the virus begins to spread uh, more rapidly than it has been uh, even still. Um, so the, the, the question really to ask is, would any government do anything any different? Well, on the basis of these material things that we're considering, the vaccines, um, mask wearing, easing, that sort, that sort of thing, probably not. Um, the, the bigger things that, that the governments are getting wrong, in my view, are the things we discussed earlier, which is the, the uh, financial arrangements that have been made or, or the lack of financial arrangements that have been made uh, for people who, just as we've been saying for the last 18 months, may need to uh, self-isolate uh, to protect themselves, their families, friends, everyone else from the disease. Um, there's even less provision for people to do that now, you know, now that the furlough scheme has ended, has ended as well. Um, um, so, you know, it, it, it's, it feels as we go into winter that okay on the face of it some of the uh, some of the things that the government's kept in place are kind of common sense i think they'll be implemented by any government but what worries me the most is the lack of uh, financial arrangements for people who need to isolate which has been a problem throughout the pandemic and is even more acute now that they are essentially assuming the economy is back to normal um, and that could precipitate another wave of the disease a much less deadly wave of the disease, I suspect, because of the vaccine rollout. And it's good to see that there are booster shots included in this plan. 
um, but nevertheless it will lead to an increase in potentially unnecessary deaths. Um, so I hope that's bal balanced enough analysis for, for you, Bradley. Um, once again, um, as I've said uh, many times before, um, I, I, I am cautiously optimistic about the, about this winter, while not also while not particularly trusting the government themselves to get it right. Optimism on on both news stories tonight, Callum. Um, perhaps that's what we need more of. Uh, on the left, I think we can we, we can tend towards to be. being very gloomy and pessimistic about things. Because um, it's because you know those of us on on the left, we're, we're often out of power, so we're we're often pessimistic by nature, I suppose. But um, no, I I I think a more optimistic, a cautiously optimistic outlook on both stories is probably the most useful position to take at the moment. Yeah. Well, say on that in, in broad terms, I would say if you want to feel more optimistic, always study history. Even if you're thinking about things like pandemics, plagues, they come and go, they end, and they usually precipitate social change in their wake. So if you want to feel more positive about that, read about read about the plagues of the past and you'll feel more positive for it. I think there, there's some there's some cheery reading for you. Um, for speaking like a true history student, Callum. Well, folks, that's it from us um, for this podcast today. Um, you've been joined today uh, by your host Bradley Allsop. Uh, you've also been joined by Ollie. Goodbye, everyone. Take care of yourselves. Uh, and you've also been joined uh, by history graduate Callum Watt. <laughs> Good evening, all. Don't forget to join the trade union and stay safe. What was history actually? Was it politics or history? Your actual degree? Uh, both. I studied history and politics. Oh well, there you go. Fantastic. Yeah, I, I did. I did wonder for a moment. I, I always assumed history was in it somehow because you know so much about it, but then it didn't necessarily mean you studied it, did it? But yeah, there you go. History, yeah. history and politics uh, graduate. Kind of. <laughs>